Welcome to Weed Week. I'm Alex Halpern. And I'm Donnell. Um, oh, yeah, Alexander. Hey, Alex, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm great. This is the Weed Week podcast. You can subscribe to our free newsletters, Weed Week, Weed Week California, and Weed Week Canada at weedweek.net. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Weed Week News. Got any feedback? Write us at hello at weedweek.net. I know you millions of you have written in, um, but I haven't checked that email address in a bit. But oh I, I will get to it very soon. Thanks for that. You can also join our Patreon, and if you do that, if you give us $2 a month, you get an extra episode of the podcast every month, as well as some stickers and swag, and then there's more more swag and, and gifts. As we we you, got a bunch of people last week who jumped on board because- I saw that. Too good to be true. That, that was great. So thanks so much. We appreciate your support. We welcome you into this community. And this week, we're going to do something a little different, right, Alex? Yeah. We're going to talk about the stories that have kind of uh, moved the agenda all across the country, mostly in the West. But as you see, this national phenomenon is something to behold. Yeah, exactly. We're going to do the stories that have most touched the cannabis scene this year. So let's get into it. It's been that thing about cannabis years. You know, when I met you, you told me about cannabis years, about how much happens and it's how compressed it is. And now I've lived it and I'm aged. <laughs> That's what they say. I mean, I think one of the big stories this year is we're, we're finally seeing the rise of big weed. Yes, and we are. we're getting a sense of what that looks like. And a bunch of companies known as sort of by the industry abbreviation, multi-state operators or MSOs are really asserting themselves for, for the first time. I think one of the interesting things about them is that they don't really have quite as much of a presence in California as, as they do in the East, I think. But the things that have enabled them to grow and, and build value, for example, Acreage Holdings, which is based in New York, has received an offer of, of acquisition for $3.4 billion from, from Canopy Growth, which is the big Canadian company, um, once U.S. law allows it. But what's interesting with Acreage is that they have a presence in 20 states, but they're still not that big a company. Like The value they created for Canopy isn't about selling weed or creating brands that everybody loves like their main store brand is the botanist have you heard of the botanist i've seen it okay where online online yeah, yeah. and then there's another company ianthus they have a brand called b and they're both planning to you know a big national rollout but they're still not selling a lot of weed what makes them valuable is these are started by companies by by wall street guys and what they've been able to do is raise money and then acquire licenses either by applying for them or by just buying out companies that already applied for them. So what's the aim here? Well, the aim is, I guess, to get a really large market share in the market. But I guess what's interesting is that, you know, growing weed, it's not, it's not rocket science. You know, it's hard to do, but you can figure out how to do it at a pretty big level. But that doesn't seem to be the most valuable skill. The most valuable skill seems to be being able to raise money and so the the 
reason this is a big problem is that when competition time comes, they're going to have even now they have deeper pockets and they can outlast whoever they compete with. Is yeah, that, am I reading that right? Is that? I mean, it's not necessarily a problem. It, it, I mean, if you want to see, I guess, smaller businesses thrive, then I guess it maybe it is a problem. Yeah, it means that sort of like if they can raise the money, you can build your footprint, and then that becomes a dominant brand almost by default, regardless of what customers think about it. Another interesting thing is that a bunch of them are under investigation for pushing for sort of pushing the limit of state laws, which are sort of designed to contain them and foster smaller local businesses to grow. And it remains to be seen whether states will have the will or the interest in in cracking down on these companies who are well lawyered up and well funded and very interested in becoming very big, powerful companies. So, and right now it's up to the states to sort of make sure they're they're following the rules. And these investigations are going on in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Massachusetts, I believe Maryland as well. I feel like people are so close to the story that they can't talk about it. And I've been watching this over the year and I feel like I've become one of these people who really can't talk about it because I feel close to it. And even as you talk about the abbreviations, I'm like, that is so alien from what everyday people are actually thinking about. And so I I feel like, I feel so fatalistic, which I never do. I feel like there's an inevitability to their presence and they've been sort of month by month becoming bigger. And it's hard for us in California because as you say, we don't have multi-state operators so much. And uh, Like MedMen, I guess, is a multi-state operator. Yeah, that's right. That's the one we... And they're a much more prominent brand. Right. And, and and just because, as we talk about it, one in seven people uses legal weed. Most people don't use MedMen. Most weed users don't use MedMen or even know that it's a thing unless they've gone past the billboards. But I feel like uh, a lot of the future's sort of uh, been sold. Yeah. No, it, it's true. I mean, you think about it in terms of like Coca-Cola or something like that or like Levi's, like big iconic american jeans mm-hmm. it's like coca-cola obviously is famous for its marketing i'm sure revis has has good marketing as well but at the beginning it was a, a connection between the product and the consumer mm-hmm. and here you don't, you don't think that can happen you, you know they raise the money then they then they develop the brand like you know there's a that's a process you can go through but you know if you have enough money to do it you can hire you know a branding firm and they'll help you help you do it and it's almost like designing the brand that the public is going to take rather than the public uh making that choice for themselves i mean i think a lot of people probably myself included would struggle to tell the difference a lot of the time between like craft artisanal weed and pretty good weed Pretty good week. Never mind that yeah. you can't tell the difference between different artisanal brands. Because I think I can. I, I like to think I can tell the difference between these right. crafts. We should do a taste test. Mm, yeah. And then maybe even put it on air. Okay. So let's, let's move on to mine. And I, I started with Oregon Interstate Commerce. They have way too much weed in Oregon. That's like a trope that's almost a joke now. Do you ever, have you heard the expression, um, organ problems? <laughs> that's when you have too much weed. No, I that's a new that. expression I've come across. They basically just hand it out at the airport. <laughs> I wish they would. The governor signed a, signed into legislation in June this um this deal to have interstate commerce with um states that work with Oregon to receive the weed that they can't 
taken on their own. And I found it interesting because it can't go into place until there's a federal legalization. So it's kind of a pie-in-the-sky deal. What they or are, at least, could it go into place if, like, California signed the same rule? No, 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 no. That's that's not the case. Okay. Yeah. And, th- yeah, that makes it a little bit more of a pie-in-the-sky thing. But when it happens, they are going to be ready. They're going to be the first ones to deal with Nevada or, say, I'm, I'm trying to How talk. are they going to be ready? Like, I mean, it's just sort of like a concept. It's like when you're going to sell it across state lines, they'll be ready to sell it across state lines. But right. I don't know how hard that is. You know, I'm saying it's a commitment to a concept. It's like sort of cannabis equity as a concept. I think that this is the sort of thing that can be copycatted. And I think I like it more because I hate the idea of growing weed in places like Nevada where you're going to be wasting water. I've turned into a radical environmentalist yeah. in my old age. Yeah, Arizona too. And lots, all these places that will actually benefit from not growing weed there. Yeah, I mean, there is no reason why they should be growing weed in the Arizona desert or the Nevada desert. Right. It's just stupid. Well, is it is it um, easy to grow weed in... Vermont, are there places, are there other environments back east that actually are, are viable in terms of growing pot outdoors? I'd be curious just to know what I mean, probably the, in summer. <laughs> yeah, right. I'd be curious to know what seasons we're actually going to see some benefit. I mean, I think indoor, it's probably sort of the same all the time. Yes. The, the question is just how much water do you have to yeah, do it? It's right. also expensive because, you know, indoor is all artificial light. Right. So that's why some people say, that's why Colombia or Uruguay could become a major grower. And that right. could undermine Oregon's plan too, right? Right. And we talked about this when we had our editor from Canada, Jesse Staniforth, on. You know, once the doors are open for the Caribbean and these other places outside the United States, this internal economy, the United States domestic economy in terms of cannabis, is going to be turned upside down. Yeah. Okay, so what do you have next? Well, it's not exactly weed, but it's pretty interesting that hallucinogens and, and just to go back but this is this is what i'm talking about ideas inspire other people this is clearly a movement that's inspired by the cannabis movement yeah tell us about it it's kind of crazy that magic mushrooms are, are now decriminalized or, or legalized in denver and, and oakland and coming to berkeley soon but i don't know it's it's kind of wild i i'm not as, as i made clear on our episode the other day with the the women from Double Blind. I'm a little wary of psychedelics. I'm I, I'm not sure how good an idea it is. I don't have the skepticism you do about hallucinogens because I know that they are indeed already out there and people have been using, sure. using them dangerously. My life changed when legalization happened. And I, I guess I mean medical because I got my dosage right. On my whole life, I'd just been randomly smoking pot and getting my sense of indica, sativa, the volume of pot and the other things that make pot behave as it has, has changed the way I consume it. And I do think that if there was some sort of organizational, institutional uh, treatment of hallucinogens, I, it would help. What I found interesting about your your observations during the uh, Double Blind episode, which is a great episode to find if you want to go back, you know, um, right. one of my favorites, super insightful, is that the economy around it's going to be so different. And I, I'm really curious to see who decides that they're – what capitalists decide this is what they want to get behind and what their intentions will be. Right. But, I mean, the, the issue is just that people don't use as much of it, anywhere near as much of it. So it's just harder to move. You're right. That's never going to be used as much as cannabis. One thing that happened is in the Northeast, New York and New Jersey both failed to legalize. Right. Now, why does that bother you? I don't know if it – 
bothers me necessarily, but you know, uh, I think some anti-legalization activists have claimed a victory. I don't think it's that. I mean, both governors support legalization. They couldn't figure out the terms right. They, I think, especially in New York, they really tried to rush it, and it it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And in New Jersey, you know, there was a lot of squabbling. It was very New Jersey, and they just couldn't agree. I think you have to strain pretty hard to to see it as a sort of a historical setback, but it it probably is a setback to some companies' business plans and stuff like that. I feel different from a lot of people in this, and that I feel like them not passing a a law and doing it right is fine with me. If people just don't get to start making money in New York yet, that's fine with me. I want you to do it right. But I agree. Yeah, and I mean, we look at the the problems with California and we're having to reference Oregon, every one of these states has an opportunity to do it well. And this is probably a good dovetails for something else I wanted to talk about. The equity portion was a stumbling point. And um, I do feel like you do it, you do it right. We have a guest coming up, Shalene Title, who will tell us about the, the difficulties in doing an equity program properly. And as I look from state to state, and I don't drill down as hard as you do on these, I see improvements, you know. California social equity and the individual cities are um, criticized and with good reason. But we do get to see Massachusetts do better. And after Massachusetts, models doing well, Illinois does. And I know we have some some issues with Illinois, how how their social equity component is written. But it's a lot better than California. They're not going to struggle. Colorado doesn't have any equity. Exactly. Exactly. So incrementally, we're seeing more performance. Um, But having said that, um, Los Angeles hired a social equity coordinator. I think that's the name of the position, just to get a handle on all this because they've been really slow to make it happen. Oakland, which was really heavily shadowed upon for all their poor planning, they've actually had some success. They have a business in place, Blunts and more. They're on board, and I think we're seeing the end of them just looking like a, a clown show. Okay. Uh, that's, that's really mean. I don't mean a clown show, but people have been very harsh on it. Uh, San Francisco and Sacramento have done well. So we're seeing these local programs work out. But, but pretty high profile at yeah. the same time. One, one big story that you know a lot about is like California is finally cracking down on, on the illegal market. Like mm-hmm. Just these huge raids everywhere. Like oh, What's going on? Oh, for the past two weeks, it's been all around, all around the state raid after raid after raid. I don't think we're seeing so much in the big municipalities as we are in the Grosom and Humboldt County. I saw a grow in Yuba City. I don't know if you know Yuba County at all. That's Northern California, middle of nowhere, but an enormous grow there. And San Bernardino County has seen outrageous raids Santa Cruz last week. And it's really, it seems to me like the iconography of the old illicit market, formerly known as the market, newly right. demonized as the black market, we're watching it go away. And I, I'm, you know, I'm nostalgic for all the California lore of pot and, you know, the, the infrastructure. Just to see it go away like that is weird. And it's going away secretly. I wonder if there, anyone's videotaping this somewhere. I, I feel kind of sad. And also like, Santa Barbara County, of all places, has emerged as sort of the the legal growing hub of California. Also capital, but but it looks like they're growing or about to grow way too much as well. I didn't know that there were enough licenses given or applied for that would in Santa Barbara County alone that would supply the state. Mm-hmm. That's so remarkable. that's a lot of weed. 
It is. Here's something that really I think we have to talk about. And it's, you know, it'll never be on the level of the, the extinguishing of the illicit market, but it is a lifestyle change. And that's the change in consumption laws. And it's happening not just in California. It's in Denver. There are plans to have consumption cafes in Massachusetts, but it's a tall order. It matters because of things more than the biggest trend in bartending and restaurateur or cooking with cannabis and THC. That's like documented the biggest trend in kitchens around the country or professional kitchens. It matters because we have the sense like legalization happened. And as we've established, most people go to illicit markets. If you go to a dispensary or you know a dude, that's how the vast majority of people are getting pot these days. And if you don't have a place to consume it, What's really different with legalization here, you know? It's true. I mean, one thing that I think it's sort of a business problem, too, because it's like the weed now is so strong. If you go into a pot cafe and buy like a, a $10 joint, mm-hmm. you know, you can just sort of hang out there all day and not buy anything else. Right. Well, maybe so, that's why, maybe that's why these no people, Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's why these businesses are so interested in selling us cannabis beers, you know, because you can make them 10 milligrams per beer and you can sip beer for like three or four hours the same way you did with alcohol. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. But it is coming. Another great episode we did this year was with Danny Gonzalez, the designer. And he talked about dispensaries that will be mixed with places that are swimming pools. And basically, it's like the John Stewart bit in Half-Baked. Everything but on weed. You know, <laughs> right. it, they're, the possibilities are endless. And we are just like beginning to see a little bit of it. And I think that's that's top 10 worthy, top five worthy. Yeah. I mean, the social use cafe that they're opening next month in West Hollywood looks really nice. It looks well, pretty pleasant. Yeah. But it looks like a restaurant. Oh, yeah. It looks really fine. Um, and I'm sure it'll be overpriced. Yeah. I, I, I live there. Lots of things are overpriced. Let me tell you, though, um, one thing that's waiting for the opening of this cafe is complaints. The local synagogue has been complaining about the possible arrival of this cafe. And I think that's a harbinger for what all of these consumption enterprises are going to have to deal with. Yeah. They... And people get really worked up about that kind of thing. I've never gotten so many angry calls about a story I wrote as when I was an intern in San Diego many years ago. I wrote about like a convenience store that was applying for a liquor license. And people were so upset and they thought, oh my God, there goes the neighborhood. Even though there were already, you know, so many liquor licenses in the area. They're like, oh, you don't throw gas on a burning fire and stuff like that. So, I mean, there's definitely going to be a lot of nimbyism. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to cape for the uh, for the nimby people. But the fact is that an arrival of a liquor store does make a difference. It does make an impact in terms of crime in your neighborhood. And I don't think we've seen that with the dispensaries yet. Maybe we have and I don't know about it. But I, I think it's an apples to oranges comparison. The studies I'm aware of have said dispensaries don't seem to contribute to crime. Another study is that a lot of dispensaries are popping up, and this was certainly the case in Denver, in more impoverished neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And that that's not a particularly appealing trend and probably something that needs to be addressed. Like if, if the industry is, is preying on lower income people, that that's not particularly attractive. And probably to some extent they are. Well, I don't know. I'm going to push back on that a little bit again, because that's what I do. I feel like there, I know for a fact that there are studies that say dispensaries are bringing value to neighborhoods, and all of this has to be dealt with on a planning commission level. You know, we hear so much about the importance of 
being active in politics. And I think people like to show up for the big Tuesday city hall meeting where they got the mic and they're on closed circuit TV or whatever, but people don't go to planning commission meetings. And you know, really that's where you get the decision about where a dispensary is going to go. Yeah, that that makes sense. So the States Act, and this is in, in Washington DC and like a lot of things there, it's taking its time, but, uh, the States Act, which would essentially legalize state legal businesses federally, that has passed the House of Representatives, the Democrat-controlled House of Representatives. And the question is whether it will pass the Republican-controlled Senate. I mean, that's one question. I mean, yeah. is, the other question is, is that settling, you know, to have the States Act, which allows legalization basically in states, but maintains this level of federal, federal illegality? Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think too many cannabis owners are, are worried about being thrown in jail right now. Right. But it would be a move towards bank access. It would be a move towards fairer taxes, even though it wouldn't officially do any of those things. It would probably have advantages for their businesses in a bunch of different ways. It would be a big step. Right. You know, I hear all this conversation about what's going to happen. And the fact is that, you know, the future's unwritten and it's always unwritten, but with 2020 coming, it's never been more up in the air. I mean, no. based on everything we've seen in the summer of 2019, it's possible that we could see the environment completely turn against pot in Washington. There would have to be some sort of really horrible tragedy, I think. What do you mean, a pot tragedy? The many, many pot tragedies? Yeah, you know, 9-11? I mean, some sort of like a like a marijuana-loving mass shooter or something like that. Because <laughs> There's so many. No politician, even if they don't want to legalize, nobody wants to be the politician who takes away the people's weed. I saw that. Um, God, uh, one of the congressmen from um, McClintock. Do you know McClintock? Um, Tom He's McClintock. California. Yeah. He, um, the he, Republican. He threw a Gerald Nadler who spoke at this big committee last week on um, where they actually had a discussion on cannabis. He accused him of throwing the race card out by bringing up social equity and all the issues surrounding it. So, you know, it's a new conversation. And I, I think not every congressman in the world, every congresswoman in the world is completely on board. The question is, yeah, who sees it as a bulldozer that can completely steamroll their career? No, I, I, don't, I don't think there's the appetite for it. The future is notoriously difficult to predict. but Being unwritten and all. Right. But, um, you know, some folks have talked about Trump trying to legalize as sort of a Hail Mary to win re-election. I don't think that's going to happen. Well, you know, but what about the other way? You know, I mean, William Barr right now could do anything. We're, we're in the midst of an unprecedented summer. And if there's something that miracle upon miracle solidifies the base, it could happen. Everything's on the table. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll see. That's the only thing we know is that we'll see. Yeah. So... We're covering these stories every week in our newsletters, and they're all free. So if you're interested in these issues or if they affect you or your business or your life, Weed Week, Weed Week Canada, and Weed Week California, weedweek.net. So sign up. You know, of course, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Weed Week News or email us at hello at weedweek.net. Tell us your predictions for the second half of the year. How's the legal landscape going to change? And we do promise to check that email address because, you know, your thoughts are really important to us. Right. And of course, if you want to join our community on Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com slash weedweek. 
Oh, and if you are in San Jose this week at NCIA and you see us walking around, say hi. I don't talk to people, but I'll make an exception this week. Yeah, say hi. Sure. Why not? Okay. I'm Donnell Alexander. I'm Alex Halperin. Our producer is Hannah Smith and Alicia Byer wrote our theme music. Additional music is from the late, great Andre Bush. We'll catch you here later next week. Thank you.